This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. In this episode, we talk with Hugh Dubberly, Principal of Dubberly Design Office, or DDO, in San Francisco, California. DDO focuses on making hardware, software, and services easier to use through their deep expertise in information and interaction design. Dubberly's career has spanned many influential design leadership roles, including Apple, Netscape, and Art Center College of Design. In our conversation, Hugh talks about the death of graphic design as we know it, gives thoughtful proposals for readapting designer skill sets, and the importance of understanding systems in the design practice of the 21st century. Hugh Deverly, thank you for joining us on This is Design School today. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's been a joy. And it's an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. One thing we wanted to start off with was just kind of what your path to finding design was and what your journey through that has been. Um, I started off studying uh, architecture. Mm-hmm. And I was at the University of Colorado for two years. Then I went to RISD. I got an undergraduate degree in graphic design. And then I went to Yale and I got a master's degree in uh, graphic design. But my practice has always been in the computer industry. Mm-hmm. I worked for Xerox when I was a, a graduate student. Uh, and then uh, when I got out of school, I became the design director for Wang Laboratories, which was a Fortune 100 mini computer company. So that was quite a long time ago. And then I uh, went out to work for Apple uh, here in California, uh, just after Macintosh was launched, I was at Apple for about 10 years. I managed one of the three design groups at Apple, uh, what is now the graphic design group there. And then I um, went to work at Netscape and I became vice president of design for Netscape. And in about 2000, we started our own business with some Apple and uh, Netscape alums. Which is the Dubberly Design Office. Right. Yeah. Which is where we are today. Yeah. And what does uh, DDO focus on these days? Uh, We design software and services. Uh, We're particularly interested in integrated systems of hardware, uh, software applications, uh, networked services, and uh, human services. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, you know, graphic design as as, as a practice is obviously can wear a lot of hats or operate in a lot of different spaces. So design operating in that context, I guess, what would you say are the key strengths or opportunities you bring to the table? You're raising a whole bunch of issues. So I'm (laughs) just going to wander around here for for a moment. Yeah, let's start. Um, A provocative place to start is perhaps to suggest that graphic design as we have known it is dead. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to make anybody nervous or unhappy. Uh, So I want to qualify that quickly. I said, as we have known it. So a signal of this change is that in, back in the day when I was at Apple, uh, there were half a dozen world-class printers in California. Today, 
there, there, there's maybe one. You know, you might argue that you actually have to go to Vancouver. So that's a signal of a, of a big change. You know, we used to print at, at Apple and even at Netscape uh, annual reports. One of the things we started doing at Netscape almost immediately was putting the annual report online. Now annual reports are, uh, the ki that kind of lush printed annual report is a thing of the past. Yeah. Um, another signal is, is recently this spring, uh, there was a conference at Yale on the history of graphic design education. It was about uh, the graphic design from, from the Bauhaus to the internet. And a kind of saying that sort of that era has, has come to a close and historians are starting to look at that now. The, the good news though is when I, I was talking to Meredith Davis recently uh, who teaches at North Carolina State or an emeritus faculty there. And Meredith was talking about looking at labor statistics and the small number of jobs that will be available for traditional graphic designers, but the large number of jobs that will be available for some new kind of designer where I'm not sure that the name has completely gelled yet for what this is. Mm -hmm. What's ironic, I think, and what Meredith was sort of scratching her head about is at the same time that people were saying, you know, well, graphic design jobs might be declining, people involved in data science and data visualization were having trouble finding people to design data visualizations. And you kind of go, well, wouldn't that be a graphic designer? And yet it's not clear to me that design schools have really changed what they're doing uh, to help students really have the background that they might need in say statistics or machine learning uh, or even something as simple as Python or, or you know, the, the D3 libraries. And I mean, there are exceptions uh, of course, to this, but schools tend to lag, I think, a little bit practice. Glacially. <laughs> so if design as we know it is dead. Well, or graphic design. Gra graphic design. Yeah. So if graphic design as we know it is dead, what is it that we are doing right now? Or um, what is the need for a designer right now to be doing? I don't think there's one single answer I think there are many answers. So the truth is we still need people with traditional graphic design skills to give shape to form, uh, to uh, give shape to content, to structure information. At the same time, we need people who can design software, who can design for interaction, who can design for service, uh, who can design for the emerging uh, world of platforms and product service ecologies. So I'm, I'm making a distinction between really three sort of uh, domains of design. So Jay Doblin, uh, has put forward a, a model which suggests sort of three scales of design. Uh, he talks about the design of artifacts, which could be products or communications. 
talks about the design of what he calls unisystems, but but really uh, um, systems, which mm-hmm. are collections of, of objects that have some relation to each other. And then he talks about multi-systems or systems of systems. Joy Ito has talked about design uh, moving from the design of objects to the design of systems to the design of uh, complex adaptive systems. Uh, John Maida has talked about uh, kind of classic design, uh, design thinking, and and computational design. Um, Jackson has talked about uh, first generation design, second generation design, third generation design. These all have kind of the same idea of an increasing scale of of complexity, and I think you could add on to that a, a sort of another dimension. When designers are, are dealing with sort of the classical or, or first order or, or product design, commu- design of communication that is traditional graphic design, they're, they're focused on, generally they focus on the form. Education also focuses on the form of these objects. But as soon as you get into practice, you start to see that the form has to have some relationship to, to meaning and structure and, and then as you have more experience, you see, oh, well, that structure actually has some relation to context. And so you really get these three levels, context, structure, and form, or, um, you know, to use the academic terms, you might, you might say the, the pragmatic, the semantic, and the syntactic. So uh, design moves in, has been moving, I think, in both directions from uh, product system to system of systems or product service ecology, and then also from from form to also structure to also dealing with the context. So it's a change across both of these dimensions. And this necessitates, I think, a change in, in what designers do. It's relatively easy for an individual designer to be kind of focused on the form of an object and to keep all of that in mind. Yeah. Um, but when you're looking at the context and everything else for a product service ecology, then it's not about individuals. It's about teams and a bunch of things change. We have to be a lot more explicit about the process. We have to create artifacts, which help align the team. Um, we have to be concerned about facilitation. We move perhaps from solving problems to creating situations uh, or conditions in which things can emerge. So would you say that perhaps a designer in the 21st century is less of a creator, a maker, a physical maker, and more of a thinker or more of a philosopher? Like it feels as if we are doing more of the high level thinking because we are, have, have always been involved in the systems of it, but now we can shed that light to to a business, to an organization, or fill in the blank. Yeah, I think one of the things designers bring to the table is an ability to make things, a willingness to experiment. Um, I often tell students they're likely to find themselves soon after graduation in a meeting which will remind them of Groundhog Day. 
at least the movie Groundhog Day, where it'd be like, gee, I was in this meeting last week and the week before and the week before. And, you know, we're still talking about the same subject. Mm-hmm. Gosh, this is not fun. <laughs> um, and what's a young designer to do? Well, one thing that you might do is go to the board. You might say, I hear you say something like this. Now, I'm probably not right, but you know, is this what you're talking about? And it probably won't be right. The dirty little secret is there isn't a right. The trick is to record something and to then use that process of making to cause people to correct you, take it on yourself or really themselves so that you can iterate on this thing that you've just been yakking about for three weeks and that it has some tangible form that people could start to agree on, where you could start to converge on uh, whatever it is that we're talking about. You're manifesting a conversation into some sort of artifact that can then, yeah, facilitate can, the can circulate. It, it facilitates yeah. the conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it can be shared later. You can come back to it. You can compare uh, an existing state uh, with a prior state or with a proposed future state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can start to talk about a roadmap. Uh, you can start to talk about getting alignment, uh, where people disagree, where they do agree, where we don't have enough information. Yeah. All of these things will help push the project forward. Yeah. Does that similar approach work at a higher scale of problem solving? So for example, earlier you were talking about going from artifacts to systems. And when we go up to that larger scale, does that process, does it work at that larger scale? And is it maybe become even more important? Uh, Absolutely. So when you're designing a physical artifact, whether that's a a product or a poster or book, part of the design process is to to make prototypes. Traditionally, the process is to go from lower fidelity to higher fidelity, mm-hmm. to increase the amount of detail in the prototype, to make the prototype more and more like the what you imagine the finished artifact will be. These prototypes are are very tangible. Uh, they're real things that you can can see and touch. And the thing that you're going to man- manufacture is a real thing that you can see and touch. When we move into the world of systems and then further into the world of product service ecologies or systems of systems, these things are less tangible. Uh, systems can unfold over time. They can unfold over space. It's very difficult to to climb up to some uh, hilltop and see the whole system. So we need some kind of proxy for for making uh, approximations of the system. And we have to rely uh, to some extent on uh, drawings for for doing this, on, on making representations. And graphic designers can bring the skills that they have traditionally used to this new activity. Does that also manifest itself? So from a 
from a systems level, like mapping that out is one thing, but then isn't another representation of that similar to that concept, except more in real time in terms of getting feedback or? Well, so there's a, a couple of ideas we might want to distinguish here. Yeah. Uh, one idea is just the process of beginning to design systems. Often in our practice, we encounter systems that already exist, mm-hmm. uh, but which were built in a very ad hoc fashion. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we're brought in, the you know we say patient presents with some issue, um, and we have to go try to figure out well what the problem is. And one way to do that is to try to represent the existing system to map that existing system. That might begin with interviews. It, it might begin with discussions with a product manager uh, or with a product team. And at that point, it, it might be scratches on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. That might become then more formalized. If, as is true in many cases, there are many people involved in the uh, system, uh, many stakeholders, uh, many people who own pieces of the system, as it were. Uh, if you interview them separately and then put it all together, a likely event is that uh, there will be arguments. <laughs> and they, what will happen is you will surface that the team members do not have a common view of the system they may not even have a common view of like the architecture of the system, how the pieces fit together, mm-hmm. but it's almost certain that large parts of the details of how the system work will not be clear to individual team members. How do you facilitate the process of disagreeing in, in that, right? Because in that situation where the system is somewhat of an intangible thing that you're kind of trying to map out through, in some ways, secondhand accounts, uh, how do you how do you do that and author that kind of view of the system without, in some ways, devaluating that that system could look different from different parts of being in the system? Does that make sense? I, you're absolutely right that the um, the designer becomes part of the system, <laughs> uh, and the so. There is a kind of subjectivity which is brought to it. And it's important to acknowledge that it may not be possible uh, to have a a sort of truly objective view of of what the system is. Um, It's this compilation of points of view. Or more precisely, it's what the team agrees that that the system is. Where the designer can be helpful, particularly as a facilitator, is by putting something on the table or something on the wall uh, or in the shared folder where we can all say, well, yeah, kind of, but what about this? And then somebody else will say, well, that's not the way I see it. And then the designer can kind of step back and and let those two hash it out. Uh, or if one of them's being kind of stepped on, can say, well, wait a minute, you know, I heard him say this and I heard her say that. And is that what you said? And, and, and I think that really becomes true facilitation. So then once the system is mapped, 
that as almost an artifact of artifact representation of the system like how does that then help facilitate moving forward in well probably another design process yeah yeah the, a, a couple of things I, I think the one of the values of creating maps of systems is that they enable conversation mm-hmm. um, they become what the sociologists call a boundary object uh, what Paul Kahn calls uh, an alignment artifact that uh, can be used to mediate between uh, people with different backgrounds. And I believe that conversation is a key part of, of design, of the design process. And it begins with, you know, traditionally designers have always had conversations with themselves. Schoen talks about conversations with materials. The conversation continues when we want to think about what a preferred future state might be. I I think one thing I wanted to to maybe follow up with was Mm -hmm. there's a complication that uh, we should acknowledge to this mapping effort. Mm. The, The map is a snapshot at a point in time. The systems are very likely dynamic and there becomes some effort to keep the map of the system up to date with the, the changes of the system, just as it um, often grows sort of organically, if you will. Mm-hmm. In my own experience, that's always, anytime I've tried to map a system like that, that process always becomes very onerous for very quickly. Is there any way around that? Um. I think we will begin to see some ability of systems to map themselves mm-hmm. or of software to be able to map to map systems. So that's one possible hope for this. You know, you could imagine at least better tools for designers for, for mapping systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting way to perhaps uh, conclude is the future. How do we, do we see the, the those systems in the future as part of the design system, as part of the overall system, as part of the design process that we teach in design education? Yeah, there's a lot to that to that question. You use the phrase design system, and it's a subject that's very much on our minds these days. Um, we're particularly interested in the history of design systems. I, I have a, a friend, uh, Chuck Byrne, who um, says, oh, all that internet stuff, you know, that's just like signage systems. And he's right. In a way, the idea of design systems seems to grow out of uh, some work in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, perhaps with the, the Milan uh, subway signage system, uh, the Schiphol Airport signage system by Benno Wissing, uh, of course, Massimo Vignelli's uh, work with with systems. Uh, I think in a way, Massimo may be a kind of bridge from signage systems into corporate identity systems mm-hmm. with his work with Unimark, Shermayev and Geismar with the original Chase uh, logo and, and that identity system, which led to 
to other system identity systems. These identity systems are are forerunners. These signage systems and then identity systems are precursors to today's software design systems, things like material design at Google and and others. And some of what's changing there is that designers are learning to make reusable parts in the way that programmers have made reusable parts. So we now have not just collections of icons, but libraries of widgets, uh, libraries of other kinds of elements that designers might use. You haven't needed those as an individual designer. You can just go change something until the point that, hey, you have an icon and it's showing up on many different pages and going and changing it individually on all those pages is really something of a pain. If you have it as a symbol and you just change it once and the change propagates everywhere, that's much better. If it's in a library and you have many designers working on something so that you can change it one place and then it changes in all of its instances across all of these applications, that can be even more powerful. Uh, so that area of just of design systems, which is really, I would say, a very traditional area of design, um, is still itself evolving. And we're seeing folks bringing uh, very interesting uh sort of strategies from using tools like GitHub uh, and uh, using tools that would be used to manage the development of uh, software libraries, bringing those tools to the management of uh, design systems for software. And, and so in that sense, the, the designer has taken on an even more sophisticated role as a, not just a facilitator, but, but really building systems of governance mm -hmm. uh, to go along with the design system. Um, because it it doesn't matter how beautiful the design system is if the if the programmers aren't using it. Yeah, what use is it then? What use is it then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you think about the idea of designing, having design systems, creating like, you know, libraries of design elements and stuff that can be used, but also updated and distributed, at a larger scale. Then when we think about the tools designers use today and, and the way and method we design, you know, right now at least designers still go into a program like Sketch or Figma or XD or whatnot, and still designing layouts following somewhat guided rules, but also still following individual instances where you need to like solve interaction patterns or whatnot. But as soon as when you think about those things being resolved in brought into the system, then couldn't essentially a designer be able to set the rules and tell the system how to design? Absolutely. The technology already exists for that. Yeah. Um, the issues are much more social issues, which is a little bit why I was bringing up the governance mm -hmm. kinds of things. I th I'm sure you're familiar with the, the now infamous story of Doug Bowman leaving Google when Marissa Meyer uh, mandated that he test 42 different shades of blue. Mm. Um, I think that actually set design back uh, quite a ways. 
a couple of years after that happened, I spoke with Irene Au, who was the head of design at Google. And, and Irene said, you know, well, that was kind of an unfortunate event, certainly unfortunate to lose Doug, but, um, and unfortunate that there was the, this conflict. But Marissa had a point that it turned out that the color of blue used um, could result in, in millions of dollars one way or another for the company. It just, what was at work here is just the enormous scale of an application like Google search. What I think designers need to, to get comfortable with is a world in which lots of variations are going to be tested. And one of the things that you're implying that kind of comes out of that is, you know, it doesn't make sense for Doug or anybody else to be sitting there figuring out what to be tested. In a way, I agree with Doug. It's like, well, Marissa, is the blue the most important thing that we could possibly be testing here? Probably not. Uh, you know, even yeah. though the blue might be worth millions of dollars. I mean, I bet there are other things that are worth even more than that. Yeah. And there are all these combinations, you know, and so for Doug or any other designer to sit there and figure out what the combinations are, is just a waste of time, right. particularly when you could have a computer do it. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think the economics are going to drive that that computers, that designers will set up computers to generate these variations, do the testing, see what works best, uh, and and then even more sophisticated programs can can actually evolve the design using, for example, genetic algorithms or cellular automata to to find kinds of solutions that designers might not even have thought of. And that might be frightening and suggest designers are going to be replaced, but I think designers actually will be at a level above that where the interesting work will be setting up these systems in which we, what we traditionally would have thought of as design is actually being done by machines or by other humans or both. I think we're going to see design education be an important, having to take an important role in in preparing students for those for these things, as opposed to just preparing for the production. It's preparing for the concepts, preparing for the facilitation, preparing for for those levels. Like you said, we're going to have to live in the level above that is programming, and I'm not sure if design education is there right now and this is that wake up call this is that the call to action right here which mm -hmm. we've captured yeah. well but it also i think comes back to you know as sometimes as design programs can sometimes be a little bit behind i think one thing that they do really well is prioritize um that thinking is one of the most important skills in critical thinking mm -hmm. more so than learning particular softwares that will continually change overnight. <laughs> and we've kind of started to see that. I don't know if you've seen that at like Yale or, or other institutions that um, learning which version of Illustrator and Photoshop and InDesign are not as important now as learning, here's the way to learn a piece of software, go do it. Now let's talk about where that fits into the scheme of things. I think I think that's where we're, we're starting to rise to, but we are definitely needing to get higher quicker, and I'm not sure if we're ready for that. 
need to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that seems to, to have happened is that uh, design education has been asked to take on more and more without necessarily being allowed to drop anything. Mm -hmm. And my observation is that much of the practice of design education is literally medieval, that it has a kind of master apprentice uh, sort of methodology. When I was a student, I got in trouble for arguing with Armin Hoffman. Inga Dreckery took me out to the type shop and pointed her finger at me and lectured me. You <laughs> don't argue with Armin, yeah? And I, I just found that and still find that so odd. So we were in the United States at a university in graduate school and the professor's expectation was that the students wouldn't ask questions. And, you know, it a little bit comes from the, the sort of context of the Kunstgewebeschule in, in Basel, which was in, in came out of a kind of trade school, uh, apprentice master uh, view of the world. I think we no longer have time uh, for that way of teaching things where you learn by example and the the education is implicit, the knowledge transfer is implicit. I think we have to become much more explicit about the knowledge transfer. And this raises some very difficult questions like, well, what is knowledge and design? Mm -hmm. As we go into the future, what are the things that students will need to know? You know, if you have a student today, that student could be practicing for 50 years. What kinds of things can you teach them that will be valuable in 50 years? Mm -hmm. You know, how to do a filter in Photoshop? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so to be more specific about this, if you think about typography in the kind of traditional way that typography is taught, going back to, to Emil Ruder, with sort of moving text around at different sizes and maybe translating that now to do that on the computer screen, that's taught in a, in a way that's very... Um, it takes a long time to learn all the little rules. And, and even then, it isn't really taught as a kind of coherent, uh, coherent idea. And one of the reasons that you teach that way is that you want students to make things and that there really is learning in the making. Mm -hmm. So I want to be careful. There's value in the making, but we could do with a whole lot more principles. And ideas from cognitive science about pop-out effects and ideas about how you build a structure of information on a page using gestalt principles, you know, we could talk about that in a lot more coherent way and I think compress um, much of the, you know, much of the teaching of typography, which many graphic designers think takes, you know, like three years there might be a way to make that take a lot less time and then we could open up some of the curriculum. You, you are right in the mindset of what I'm struggling with as I uh, come back from sabbatical of what is it that can be filtered out and somehow modular, modularize, is that yeah, a word? Yeah, exactly. And then raise up higher the thought process 
of being a designer and preparing them for a career in 30 years that they're not obsolete, that yeah. they are adaptable. Yeah. And, and I think adaptability is, is something that is, is very much in the forefront of my mind right now. One of my favorite books is titled Learning How to Learn by Gowan and Novak. And I think that just the title alone is kind of wonderful it's to, to maybe talk about it for, for just a minute sure. uh, if you're interested in the typography side of it. I found it baffling when I was a student to hear these different rules you should hang your quotes. You need to letter space caps. I'd see then people in the advertising world who would jam all the caps very close together. It's like, well, you know, there's this sort of fight between the way graphic designers do typography and the way advertising people or the way book typographers do typography and the way advertising people do typography. And how do you resolve that? Or, you know, is one of them stupid or are they both right? What do you make of all these little rules? I believe that typography can actually be simplified a great deal. Carl Dare gets at this idea with what he calls contrast, which is not a fancy idea at all. It's uh, big versus small, uh, near versus far, Roman versus italic, bold versus regular. And I believe contrast is the single operation at the heart of typography. And that contrast has sort of two sides like a coin. One side is to separate. And at the same time that you're separating, you're joining. And in this, you create groups. Mm. So the separation of one group from another and the, the joining of a group of the elements of a group together. And in that operation, then there's a sort of iteration that happens. And if you have a, a field, a page, which has typography on it, there are these moments of contrast which happen, which the reader perceives, and the reader can develop a hierarchy, a visual hierarchy that is implied uh, in the contrast that the typographer has has laid out in the page. And the measure of the fitness of the typography is literally the fitness of that tree, the perceived tree, with some implied tree in the content itself. Mm. And that you can measure or see this contrast. These You can compare these two trees. Yeah, the relationships that are happening yeah. um, with the contrast and, and the lack thereof, yeah. Very fascinating. So Hugh, as we are uh, concluding here, we usually like to end by asking for a couple of recommendations that we can take with us. Uh, and, and my first recommendation uh, is, what would you recommend, since we're here in San Francisco, of something culturally interesting or significant to you, especially being here for a while now, that you would recommend that we go see? One of the things that's nearby that's a, a little bit new on the in the design world is uh, something called the Letterpress Archive. Oh, and that's uh, that's worth a look. Okay, yeah, thank you. And I always uh, selfishly ask for a reading or an article that you've read recently that um, you felt made an impact for you 
that maybe hasn't gotten enough read by everyone else yet or you feel could make a broader impact? Yeah, I'd love to recommend uh, a book called Design by Concept, A New Way to Think About Software by Daniel Jackson. Um, He teaches at MIT. The book uh, asks the question, when we design software, what is it that we're designing? Uh, Or perhaps more specifically, uh, when we talk about a product, what, what's the core of a product? And he gets into uh, the idea of a product concept. And then he, he gives some very interesting examples of what concepts are in products. And I think this is a, a extremely important question. And, and he's making a contribution to an area of design that hasn't been that hasn't been studied very much. Austin Henderson uh, and Jeff Johnson have a a related book, an earlier book uh, called uh, User Conceptual Models, Core to Good Design. It's interesting to see the difference between what Johnson and Henderson are doing and what Jackson's doing. Mm -hmm. um, So it's a a good book. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was thank a, you. a pleasure and glad to do it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at T-I-D-S Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.